This is HRT, a podcast featuring interviews with HR leaders, researchers, students, and influencers. HRT takes trending topics and research in human resources, steeps them for 30 minutes or less, and leaves you with fresh brewed ideas on how to drive high-performing, inclusive organizations and create meaningful work experiences. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD, the graduate programs in human resource development at Villanova University. To start with, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, my name is Scott Beeson. I'm a professor of management and a Silverman Global Faculty Fellow at the Silverman College of Business at Fairleigh Dickinson University in New Jersey. I've been a longtime researcher in work life and workplace flexibility. And for the last, I don't know, 10, 12 years or so, I've really pivoted a lot of my work to be public facing and practitioner oriented. And this culminated in a couple of books that we're going to talk, I think, about some of the content of. My first book was back in 2015. It was called The Working Dad Survival Guide, and it's advice and encouragement for fathers trying to balance work and family based on like research and practice and what dads do, what organizations do, etc. And my most recent book in 2021 called The Whole Person Workplace, which really was based on a set of interviews I did with business leaders, chief human resources officers, CEOs, small business owners, actually during spring of 2020. And it was intended to be a book, as I was planning it, specifically about like supporting working parents, but it became bigger than that. And it really gets into the heart of how do we support employees, not just at work, but valuing all they are as a person and their work-life responsibilities and challenges in a bigger picture sense. And uh, lots of stories about organizations that are doing good things in this area. Wow, when we met, at the Third Path Institute Leadership Forum, you said one of the things that you're really into right now is well-being. Why is that now? Well, I mean, like many good employers, we've long recognized under the surface this was important, but I think the last three years have really shown how central and critical and how under-addressed things like employee well-being have been. I think the pandemic, one of the silver linings in the giant black cloud is that we have a better understanding that people struggle with a lot of things that they kept invisible from their employers or their coworkers or their managers or even their friends or family. And a lot of it just came out, right? I mean, we were living in such a state of anxiety and stress and grief for so long that if people don't get help or don't have it acknowledged or don't you know, aren't able to talk about it, it comes out in weird ways. And in 2021, 2022, this is why people were punching flight attendants and acting in ways that people wouldn't ordinarily act, right? We've lost a connection to well-being and to acting like the social animals that human beings are, right? So it's a big thing. And then you look at the statistics, especially about the college-age cohort and how over 40% have been diagnosed with some sort of mental health issue and and you know translating that to you and me heather it's you look at your classroom that's 30 people in a classroom that means 10 to 12 of them are really dealing with heavy stuff and it leads me to think about how do we how do i run my classroom how do i manage my classroom but i think smart managers and good employers are thinking about how do i run a workplace where i know people have these things going on And I could give them maybe some tools to help with this or the flexibility, at least in terms of time and place, so they can not get overwhelmed, not get burned out, and they can develop custom solutions to their own issues if we give them the time and resources to do it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I see that in my classrooms, which you probably also assumed in your early part of your career in teaching that that's a space for learning, not a space to, to bring your, your well-being or lack thereof. I don't think that people can learn in those environments without being supported as the people that they are and the full well-being that they have. Without psychological safety, it's hard to have a really great workplace. People don't feel free to bring new ideas or to challenge ideas or to try new things or to move with confidence going forward or to really be authentically more themselves. And that closes off your workplace to being a good workplace because it's not a workplace people will be attracted to, will stay at, but also one they won't be so focused or engaged in. And you won't get the, the innovations and the new ideas if you don't have a workplace that gives the feeling of safety and belongingness. And so that's what the whole person workplace really talks about. We build these cultures and we do it because it's the right thing to do, but also it's good business to do it. You know, I think we lead with the right thing to do. This whole idea of the whole person workplace. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means, the whole person workplace? Yeah, so it starts with how do you value employees and then how do you make those values real through what you do in human resources or in how you regularly manage your company. So let me just talk about the value part first. Many employers just see their employees as part of the machine, right? That's probably not great. So I'll leave that there. Most employers and probably yours, they probably say things like, employees are our most valuable asset. That's good too, but we take care of assets. Why? We take care of assets so they return on an investment, right? So it's still like transactional. So it's good. It's better than being just part of the machine, but it's not everything it could be. I propose that the best employers value their employees as whole people, which means they recognize, appreciate, and try to help employees, help them rise to meet their life challenges, responsibilities, priorities, and passions outside of work, and also builds a great workplace because people live a lot of their lives at work too. If you have that as a value set, then what you need to do is think through, okay, what am I doing in terms of recruitment and selection in order to help make this happen? What am I doing in terms of employee onboarding? I think that's a big missed opportunity that many organizations have. What am I doing in terms of performance evaluation that enables maybe flexibility in terms of where, when, how work gets done while holding the line on what gets done and how well? What am I doing in my comp and benefits, especially my benefits packages around wellness and well-being and giving people the baselines of things like financial security, you know, health insurance and retirement planning, and but also other benefits that can be there to really highlight certain needs of certain employees. Many companies now are starting to help new employees with their student loans. Obviously, for many years, many organizations helped with things like childcare or EAPs and things like that would be indicative of that. And then finally, beyond specific policies and programs, what are our expectations in terms of how we structure work itself? You know, work could be something that sucks your soul. Work could be something that enhances your life. And you could design work to be more intrinsically motivating, to have more opportunities for growth and development. Work could be just blah. Also, work could be something that you have some flexibility and control and autonomy over that helps you with having time to craft your own solutions around childcare or whatever else it might be. Once you get the value set, then you have to think about how do you make those values real? There's a lot of well-meaning upper-level managers who don't quite recognize that you can't just say, these are our values and 
we're a great workplace, that they really have to do the work, right, of making sure we embed those values in the workplace. So what I do in the whole first workplace book is I kind of go, you know, kind of category by category, but it's mostly anecdotes that are through my interviews of companies that do this stuff, that support volunteerism, that that do really good jobs with onboarding, even in remote work and other things like that. So I try to show that it's possible <laughs> leading companies do it. And the book is of course written for HR people and managers and leaders. And the lesson I hope comes through is you could start wherever you are and you could start with what you can start with. And that's okay. Um, if you don't mind me telling just two stories. I love stories. Yeah, so this is one employee who went to bed with a pit in their stomach of nerves, woke up early in the morning with, a, with this pit of stress in their stomachs because they had three kids who had to go to three different places and then they had to get to work. And that was the morning. And you can imagine how stressful that morning is, right? The kids are not easy to get moving and drop off here and this here and that there and getting to work. And they had an all hands meeting at this place at 845 for forever. And this person was coming in constantly like stressed at 8.52 or three into this meeting and wasn't really like there. So one day their boss pulled them aside after the meeting. He's like, hey, you know, what's going on? You were, to tell, you were stressed out today. And the person told the story about what they have to do in the morning. The leader's like, oh my God, I don't want anybody to feel like that. I can't believe I did that to you for so long. Meetings at 9.30 from now on. That's it. That's all it took. That that costs zero money and zero resources, right? So sometimes it's just little informal things. And then Adidas, they were opening a new facility in a new city and they were transferring in employees from their facilities. And, you know, they do all the relocation benefits and everything. But one of the things they did, and I thought this was brilliant, it was early summer when this was happening. Adidas proactively just bought up slots at summer camps and at schools. And so that the summer was taken care of and the fall was taken care of. And it was just one less big thing that these employees transferring in had to worry about. And, you know, when you're uprooting, maybe they're leaving extended family or the network they built up that helped them with dealing with their kids when they're working and things like that. So the fact that they could move and be like, okay, well, this summer camp's taken care of. But that's a more formalized thing that you could do. But they both had the mindset of how do I support this person, not just in their work, but as a person. It takes the realization that they probably are bringing their kids and their kids will need something to do for the summer. Yeah. And the counter example of towards the late part of the pandemic when organizations were inviting their employees back to the office, but didn't realize their children were still at home and couldn't go back to school. It was like this big disconnect between what the employees had to do and now now the position it put them in. Yeah, and this doesn't mean you can always do everything that you wanna do or make it easier for everybody in every circumstance, but the orientation is to try, right? And getting back to the Adidas thing, if you've just moved and you're starting your job and you're also worried and spending mental energy on like, what am I gonna do with my kids this summer? That's less focus you have at work. That's less engagement you have at work. You have something in the back of your mind as you're working. And that was the pandemic, right? I mean, some people were working on a laptop next to their children who were on school issued laptops, uh, getting their schoolwork done. And it's hard to be engaged and focused in situations like that. So if we can have solutions to that, all the better. So that's where the link is between this whole 
person value yeah. and well-being. Yeah. So it's funny. I do get this question when I've talked about this book. I'm the business school guy talking about this. So I want to make this as seemingly normal to conservative decision makers as possible. We value our employees so that they will be more focused and engaged and feel good about themselves both at work and in their lives. That will return on the investment. All right, and here's how you embed this in your performance evaluation and change your performance evaluation. That's normal business. And I think that's more sellable and to older school people who might be a little more resistant. And I had this experience last night. We did a thing at my business school where we do this every year. We invite area businesses and everything in and we hold little, it's called the Silverman Showcase, but we get four speakers. I was one of them. I represented the faculty side. We had this guy, an alumni who works in the financial field and he's on CNBC all the time. And he's this kind of older guy too. So I gave my talk about the 2018 workplace versus the 2020 workplace, right? And those are very different and how we need to learn from both to build the 2023 workplace. And that's hybrid work and using technology, but not losing the in-person or the, the human side that's really important. Then there's Q&A afterwards and somebody asked me a question about, you know, my employees really are bristling about coming back in. I'm trying to do these inducements. You know, what should I do? And I said, well, make it worth their while to come in in terms of their work. And, you know, the days people are in have to be different. That's the time for socialization and that's the time for collaboration and problem solving and innovation. And if you don't make those days that, of course, they're going to resent having to come in if they're just doing what they could do at home, right? Anyway, but I gave that answer. And then the financial guy next to me is like, respectfully, Scott, that's bullshit. Like everybody should be in and in all the time. And that's how I got to be successful was I was in 60 hours a week. And he's like, to your students who are there, you go in every day. And, and I just turned and I said, that's 2018 thinking, my friend. And some people still hold on to that, right? And it's hard to make change. But then he was talking about like, no, you have to like, I'm very flexible with my people and I'm very supportive of my people. And he's giving examples of that. I'm like, those are the values. You're just stuck on the workplace has to be X. It was an interesting little live debate, which I loved because I love arguing this against smart, well-intentioned people who might disagree because feel like it, I frankly have the stronger argument that if you build a workplace that works for everybody, even if it's harder for managers to build those conditions. So afterwards, we had a little cocktail hour and the chief financial officer of Crum and Foster was there. And she, she was like, Scott, your argument was right. We've been doing hybrid work since 2014 and it's worked great. And we have one quarter of the industry average turnover rate. Crum and Foster is one of the more successful accounting firms that there is. It's interesting how different executives see this. I think it's a really important point. And what you said about different managers being able to do this well, how do you feel about the capability of sort of, I don't want to say in one organization, but across the nation of leaders, managers, and supervisors, so the actual managers being able to do this well? Yeah, well, it's hard. I mean, this is new for everybody, although we got thrown into the deep end in 2020. So it seems like we should have built some of those muscles up, right? Yeah. I mean, some people, I guess, were biding their time until we could return everybody to the office. It's complicated, right? Tim Hall, the work-life researcher, 
famously said, we need less rigid forms of flexibility, which is easy to say and is the right thing, but it's hard. It's hard to manage that. So that's why hybrid workplaces are defaulting to like everybody in on Monday, Tuesday, and Thursday. That's a rigid form of flexibility, right? Because that's probably not as ideal as, hey, every department, work this out with your team, how you're going to work together. And then that's harder, right? You know, managers are busy and have a lot to do. They didn't have to worry about scheduling for a very long time because the schedule was just, these are the normal work hours. And then it was like, well, everybody's home. Everybody's doing the same thing, so I don't have to schedule, right? And now it's harder, right? I don't have a perfect answer because what's right for any workplace is yeah. it's going to be custom fit to that workplace based on its culture, its people, its clients, its demands. But there's lots of different ways to do it. And what underpins the values I'm talking about is listening, empathy, and creativity. And listening, do I know what the concerns of my people are? Empathy is not solving every problem, but am I really trying to understand their perspective and their view on something? And then finally, creativity. Even if it's not what we've done for the last 40 years, is there something I could do here? And that doesn't mean we can solve everything, but it means let me think about it. Let me, let's try to workshop an idea. Let's pilot test something. You know, lots of companies, many years pre-pandemic, they would experiment with things like job sharing or limited telecommuting. Those things are a little bit obsolete now, but they were experiments, right? They were like, let's try this and see how it works. In fact, going back to the 2015 Working Dads book, that was some of the advice I gave fathers at the time, because there's a penalty for men, especially back then, to have asked to work more flexibly. But I'm like, well, you need to make it easier for your supervisor. You draw up like a little mini quote unquote contract for the two days a week, I'm going to be home. Here's what I'm going to do. And here's how you can measure my performance. And here are my goals. And here is how I'm accessible. And let's try this for three weeks. We'll come back to it. Now it's a little easier, right? Because it's it's more normalized that people can work more flexibly. But back then, the the advice I gave people was you have to show them just because you're not going to be in the office that you can be as productive. I think we learned that in many places. Yeah, people were very productive during a crisis, working without as much structure. So now that things are normalized, why are we forcing structure back on? It doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. and. The FaceTime and structure and what are that hours? Is that all a proxy for productivity and outcomes as managers lean into understanding what exactly do I want from my employees? How can I get that from them? How can I coach them to meet deadlines and, and meet goals? It yeah. moves away from when and where. Yeah, good performance management, right, is focused on accomplishments. If we could focus on that, then we could let go of some other things. Or maybe we realize we can't let go of some of the other things if somebody's not responding well, right? Maybe some employees need more structure and need more close supervision and you adjust, right? I mean, that's the mistake. So even talking to the finance guy next to me before, he's like, no, but, you know, the people who work the biggest hours, they were the best performers. I'm like, were they? I said, you know, forever, we've had people who stay in the office and leave the second the boss leaves. And they were just playing fantasy football or whatever until then, or doing whatever else it was to, to look like they're looking at their computer or that's always been forever. And at home, people do that too. As long as people are getting their work done, we shouldn't get so hung up on some of that. If there's one HR thing 
that you need to make sure is really up to date and really good to enable flexible work. It's having a good performance management system. That's the number one key. You brought up the Working Dad Survival Guide. Some of your work had focused on helping working dads feel more successful at work and at home and helping organizations plan and promote work family programs to meet men's needs alongside women's. I want to go back to that time. What was happening at the time that made it important to support men, especially fathers, balance work and family and have more well-being? You know, this is not to make mother's issues less important, right? Uh, so I've been a work-life researcher since 1999. And when I started first diving into the literature, it just struck me. I'm like, there's nothing about guys in here. Almost all the research was on working mothers. And of course, that makes sense, right? Work-life issues land harder on women. That's where a lot of the energy was in terms of how do we support new moms in the workplace, how companies, they were losing these women in droves and they wanted to figure out solutions to it. That's where the energy was for a long time. And in fact, back in my doctoral student days, when I said I wanted to study this, I was, a lot of my professors were like, you're making a mistake. This is a backwater area. This is not a quote unquote masculine area of research. You should do something else. And I've always been a bit of an iconoclast, so I persisted. But circling back, I mean, things are easier now just because flexibility is more normalized. But thinking back, new moms face a penalty in terms of their earning, but new dads actually tend to get a, a bump in pay and things like that, right? Except dads who are visibly involved fathers they get put in with the moms and they get the negative side of these things. So it's all about, at that point, men who were visibly involved as parents so that they were doing things like asking for flexibility or leaving early for school events or talking about these things at the workplace were facing pretty severe penalties in terms of their career trajectories and things like that, similar to what many working women face. Because you can't have split loyalties and get ahead, right? Many organizations are like, you have to have your career as your first loyalty and really your only loyalty. And working moms are automatically suspect that they have a competing top priority as their family. And that that's the underlying unfair, probably illegal assumption that companies have been making about working women for a long time, right? That have held women's careers back men who were visibly kind of showing their other priority, they're also suspect. And then the men who hide it all, and in fact, my initial research was in the informal and somewhat hidden ways that people try to navigate work and family without having to raise their hand about stuff, they move along perfectly fine because they have not demonstrated a split loyalty, anything besides you know the work or the career or the, the organization. And again, here's the immoral and unfair and possibly illegal assumption about working women is, sure, women can expand into the workplace, but they still are responsible for their traditional role of running the household and taking care of the children. Men face the funhouse mirror version of this. So men are still expected to be the all-in for work provider, their traditional role, and it's fine if they want to expand as being more involved dads, but they're still expected to uphold the traditional role too. And that's really too much. And it puts people in boxes. Frankly, it leads even couples who get married 
to be fully intentional, to be like, we're egalitarian here. We're going to share things. There's no primary, quote, parent. So this egalitarian couple will go into it, but just their work experience, once they become parents, becomes for the mom, I can no longer really expect all these things from her. So I'm not going to give the same opportunities or the same advancement or whatever. She's going to plateau for a while or whatever else, which leaves it to the father to be like, I would rather be able to be flexible or to step down or plateau or whatever, but I can't, right? Because financially somebody needs to keep earning and so they wind up pushing into career and losing out on a role they would want to have. And the mother is losing out on a role they'd want to have. And so nobody's happy. People get stuck in traditional boxes when they never intended to do that. So many professional women would love to work more. And this is the, the thing nobody talks about. So many professional men would love to work less and be more involved. In and there's so much behind this too. Men get socialized for certain things. One of my best friends from college became an at-home dad. Both he and his wife were pretty high-powered careers, but when they became parents, he became the at-home dad and she kept going on her career. His father was apoplectic about this when he found out. And he's like, what are you doing? I didn't pay for you to go to Cornell, for you to be changing diapers. That's the stuff people are, that guys are fighting against. And how secure do you have to be? in your decisions to hold up against those kind of expectations. You really have to swim against the tide in a lot of ways. So what happens is the mom becomes the primary parent, the dad becomes the helper parent, kind of, and it perpetuates itself, right, in a way that nobody was asking for. So back in the mid-2010s, there was a big movement. This is when dad blogging and mom blogging was at its peak. You see on commercials, you don't see this much anymore. Or in TV shows, the doofus dad who doesn't know what the hell they're doing and the mom coming in to save the day. There was a lot of organized work that would protest companies who would have these kind of advertisements because it was like, we need to change this. And now you see things much differently in media and in society. So there was a lot of that going on. And even in 2015, the White House, they were doing a summit for working families. So they're bringing in activists and leaders from all over the country. And Vice President Biden at the time noticed on the, the program, it was like there was one or two little things about dads and everything else was moms. And he said, you know what? We should have a separate day for dads. And they did. It was a smaller event, but they did. And I got to be like one of the speakers there. So I attended the Big Working Families one, but I got to be literally on stage for a White House event. But there was a lot of movement around this in the 2015s, which is why the time was right for a book on this. It was kind of a movement towards understanding that involved fatherhood is really, really important. And we need to break down barriers to it because it's good for kids. It's good for women. It's good for women's careers. It's good for society. It's good for business. And it's good for the men themselves. People who are involved dads live longer, are happier, have more friendships, are more involved in their communities. Almost any way a kid can benefit from having as many parents and adults in their lives involved with them, they benefit. And the same thing, men themselves benefit from not getting ground down and unfulfilled and cut off from a really important part of their lives. The survival guide is for the father's perspective, yeah. like how he can do this. You write also about how organizations yeah. can do this. I just want a quick rundown on some key ideas about how organizations can get this right. Yeah, some of it's just packaging, frankly. We have to overcome some of those 
things people are raised with. Where I learned a lot of this, I was working with Amy Beacom and her group, the Center for Parental Leadership, but they do a lot of work with organizations and with individuals on parental leave, their policies, but not really the policies as much as the support for expectant parents and new parents around parental leave. Microsoft contracted with them. Every month, they would do sessions for expectant parents and new parents on the parental leave transition. So they developed this great curriculum and they were rolling this out uh, with Microsoft employees, but they were bringing it from a woman's point of view. This always like stuck with me. They were talking about like bone density loss and taking care of your teeth once you give because you know this, Heather, yes. probably, right? I had no idea about this, but it's also not super relevant to me as a new dad because I'm not losing bone density because I'm not breastfeeding and I didn't have a human come out of my body. So there's a whole thing on the physical stuff that wasn't really relevant to dads. And their early feedback from new dads was, this seems great for women, but I don't see a lot of me in here. So Amy and her team, they called me in. So I wound up doing the dad webinars for Microsoft every two weeks for about 18 months or so with their expectant dads. And it was great. And it was just repackaging it. So it's a little more like making it aspirational. It's like sports metaphors go a long way. And there's the most popular book for expectant dads that's out there is called Dude, You're Gonna Be a Dad. And it's camouflage on the cover. And it's just trying to make it a little less storks and pink balloons and things like that. And instead of saying this isn't for you, don't show up. It's like clear that it is for you and you should show up. Yeah. So that's the packaging and the marketing. Yeah. But then, you know, the content has to be relevant. And then the real proof for organizations is men will need to see other men make use of things like parental leave and workplace flexibility and then be able to come back and have their careers continue on. Men need to see that happen to some men in this organization. So I had done some work with some big financial firms and the guys who were in charge of the fatherhood employee resource group, which were executives and all the way down, they were frustrated because they worked on the parental leave policies. They were making it with parity, relative parity to, to maternity leave, but they're like, guys aren't taking it. It's like, we're offering, I think at this organization was eight weeks, but men are only taking two and men are taking two because two doesn't stick out, because two looks like a vacation to everybody else. And they're like, it's good faith. We will support them. We want them to do this, but it's not happening. How do we change this? And I said, you're not gonna like my answer. (laughs) So you gotta stick with this for three to five years because people, again, will need to see someone being brave enough to take the longer leave and being supported when they come back and not being resented and not losing their share of the annual bonus and not, missing out on the next two promotion opportunities or the next developmental opportunity. And they need to see it again and again and again. And you can publicize these things, but they need to see it more informally in, in their work lives. But that's what it takes. And it, especially in an organization like that one, which had been for a very long time, one of those like all in 60 hour a week, that kind of culture. Again, because flexibility is more normalized, more leaders have worked in a flexible way. Many of them are still stuck in that thinking like I talked about, but many of them are, no, we proved we could do this. I did it and I was super successful doing it. Why can't somebody else have the same level of autonomy over their time? I think men themselves need to realize that 
the reason that third path organization is called third path is that you don't have to stay on the regular path. And that's my end advice in the book is you and your spouse, you need to sit down and really talk about what do y'all want? And if this is a traditional approach where one person's working, one person's at home, that's great. As long as you're consciously making that choice and that's what's right for you and for your family. And if you want a more egalitarian thing, great. That's right for you and your family. If it's somewhere in between, great. That's for you and your family. You know, I'm blessed as an academic to have so much flexibility, so much control over my time. There's like 20, 20 hours a week that we really need to be in a particular place at a particular time. And that's only for like 30 or so weeks out of the year. There's always work to do. I mean, people think our summers are like, oh, you're off for the summer. I'm like, no, I'm not really off for the summer. But I could work around anything else I'm doing. You have your laptop. I could travel. I could do whatever. So yeah, I've been blessed to have this. And it's interesting. So my wife is a theater actor and director. So she goes periods without work because it's kind of a gig. But when she's working, she has no flexibility. If she's rehearsing a show, it's 10 to 6 every day in Manhattan. If she's in a show, it's evenings and weekends, right? There's no calling in sick unless you're dying. There's no, oh, the school called. There's no leeway for any of this. So as we were engaged and talking about what our life would be like, my wife is like an EQ genius. We talked it all through. She's like, this is what I'm going to need from you as we move on and, you know, eventually become parents. And just having those series of conversations really, really helped. And I was the on-call parent for the younger childhood of my child, who's now 18. I can't believe it. But I was the one who was closer by and could come to the school if there was an emergency or could be contacted. And, you know, I worked with my department chair. I used to teach much more of the evening MBA classes when my son was little. We changed it, so I'm teaching daytime undergraduate classes because somebody needed to be home in the afternoon, and it couldn't always be my wife. And so that was an accommodation that my workplace gave to me. I earned it through being a good professor, but my chair just did it without, it wasn't really much drama. I was like, hey, here's what I can be. When you're scheduling me, daytime would be great. And that's what they did. And I got to be an involved dad from day one. My son was born in mid-May, so it actually worked out really well. So I had the summer, you know, kind of not quite a full paternity leave, but kind of without having to take one. And, you know, that really helped us, the three of us, learn how to be a family together. My wife was on stage before I was back on campus, so she was able to go back to work with some confidence because I was there, right? That's the other thing. If dads can't take leave, the moms can't feel confident going back, knowing that everything will be taken care of, right? But I was there from the beginning, so she could. And then, you know, my son has grown up in a household where he could go to either parent. And I feel pretty confident that if and when he becomes a parent, being kind of a equal co-parent will become straightforward to him. That led me to be like, why can't every job be more like my job? Where we can let go of where and when a lot of it gets done. And I'm happy that the world has decided that, yeah, in a lot of cases we can. Obviously, many jobs can't be flexed, but there's things we can do to help them too. Schedule certainty, having longer lead times before schedule changes or when schedules are made, you know, compressed work weeks. Or these are other things that these employees can have to make their work-life arrangements easier. Well, we've gone full circle back to this idea of well-being. And yes. I never asked you this. What does well-being mean to you personally? 
That's a really great question. There's textbook definitions of well-being, I'm sure, that you, you could find. But to me, I feel really well when I don't feel like any part of my life is being really neglected, where I get to work and do the stuff I like about work, but I get family time and I get social time and I get time to exercise. And that's not a perfect thing. And that's a long-term thing. There are going to be crazy weeks, right? There's weeks where you have to plug in the, the 65 hours, you know, there's tax time. And there's times when it's like, okay, I have, I have health issues in my family. But in the long run, when I feel like there's no side of my life that's really fallen by the wayside, that's when I feel really good. And I think when I feel good about that, that means in each of those parts of my life, I'm better at them. Yeah. So when we take that idea of like, it means so many things and they all are up in the air and have to be sort of attended to, or they get sort of off balance. When you take that and sort of times it by a workforce where everybody has their own definition yeah. of well-being or all their balls in the air that they're trying not to drop, how does an organization sort of say, what does well-being mean to us as an organization or as a workforce? Yeah. What does a well workforce look like? You know, I've seen the guys from Gallup, they have well-being at work book that came out last year and they talked about the different areas of thriving that your yeah. employees can have right and that's financially and then you know career-wise and social and community and health and i forget what the other one is but i think the most straightforward thing an organization could do to help their workforce feel more well is to provide them the time and money for them to create the solutions that make sense for them. So again, that's letting go of where, when, and how work gets done in a performance management point of view, but holding the line on how well. And, but it also means paying good wages and having good core benefits. I don't think every organization needs to have pet sitting services and ping pong tables and things like that, although those are nice. But if people are getting paid a good salary, you know, they can work out their pet arrangement themselves, right, without adding too much stress to their lives. And if people have time, you know, maybe they don't need the pet services as much because they can work from home two days a week and the dog is not lonely. If you're going to do two things, I guess, to help your workplace, it'd be those two things. But I would say if you're an organization of a big enough size, you need to survey your employees. You need to do focus groups. You need to find out what are their issues. Secondly, you can figure out what are the predictable issues of different kind of demographic or age groups or whatever in your workplace. The concerns of the 20-something workplace are legitimate and need to be addressed, but they're not the same as a 30 or 40-something employees. 20-somethings probably aren't parents yet. They probably want to establish their careers. They probably want career development. They're trying to launch themselves as financially independent. These are some big things for that age group we could predict. Not everybody's in the same boat. And that's why large organizations should really have a wide constellation of benefits. And my favorite one of this, and it's just because BASF's North American headquarters is right across the street from our college, number one. But also, if you go to their careers page, their periodic table, and it looks like the periodic table of elements, they're a chemical company, but it's a periodic table of benefits. And it has them all color-coded in different rows and columns. And it's all the, the different slices of their benefits. And when I teach this to my students, I'm like, you probably all can't plug into this one or this one or this one, but somebody can plug into this one. Somebody can plug into that one. Somebody can plug into this one. Everybody feels supported 
if you have a wide enough range of, of things. So that's large organizations. For smaller organizations, you get to know your people much more individually and maybe we could customize solutions there or figure things out. But at the core, and this is, you know, there was a company several years ago that did a $70,000 minimum salary in their company. And that was just to be like, everybody is going to be at least up to here, financial security. And it led to wholesale changes. People started having kids. People bought houses for the first time when they were priced out of them before, you know, it transformed their lives, having that base of financial security. And who would leave a company that did that for them? It worked for the business too. And then of course the time flexibility and autonomy is really, really important too. So fair pay and yeah. financial security, a constellation of benefits that meets the needs of broad range of employees. Yeah. The flexibility, I think is a big thing in the work family realm. There's a lot yeah. of ways to be more work family balanced, but flexibility is the biggest one. Yeah. And then coming way back to yeah. where we started, which is this whole, you know, valuing people for their whole selves, because even with the consolation of benefits and the good pay, if your manager doesn't allow you to tap into those benefits or doesn't see why you would need them or assumes that you don't because they have this image of you that isn't fair and doesn't really represent who you are because you haven't been able to be transparent or have that psychological safety to talk to them about things that do work and don't work, then you're not going to be happening into all that flexibility and those benefits. Yeah. So frontline management is, you know, the key to translating a value into a real culture that people feel. That's where the disconnect can happen a lot of times. So you need to make sure that your managers, A, they feel supported. They're given the tools to be able to manage performance better, right? And you know, they're not overwhelmed by too much flexibility and other things like that. So we need to support them. They have a very difficult job. But we also need to make sure they're on board with the culture we're trying to build. And if they're not, they have to be enabled to come on board or they go off the board because we cannot allow a whole organization approach to get derailed at that critical juncture. You know, I talk about that a little bit about how um, Managers really are the liaison for employees in many ways to the culture and to HR and to HR policies. You know, if somebody gets pregnant, their first call probably isn't to HR, right? Their first phone call is probably to their manager. And then if the manager is like, okay, like I learned about what our policies are, so I can talk about them a little bit and I can direct them to the right person in HR to talk about what their benefits are. That makes it a much better transition instead of like, oh my God, what am I going to do without Carol for six weeks? If that's the first reaction, right, then that, that's a chilling effect. One can't emphasize enough how much frontline management really, really means. So, you know, to your HR students out there, we need to pour a lot of resources and time into them to make sure that they have the resources and support they need to feel confident working in this new way which is still an adjustment for a lot of people. Well, thank you so much. This has been a really interesting conversation. Of course, I'm going to link to all your resources because all of this is outlined in, in some of the research you've published and in your books. I think you tell great stories and give great examples about how this can look in practice. So I really appreciate having this conversation, but also all the resources that you've provided. Well, thank you. I am nothing if I'm not a teacher, so I'm happy to play a small part in your classes too. Thank you for listening to this episode of HRC. 
As your thoughts from today's episode steep, share with us what you are brewing using the hashtag HRT. That's hashtag H-R-T-E-A. HRT is brought to you by Villanova HRD. To learn more about Villanova University's graduate programs in human resource development, visit our website at villanovahrd.com.